You may be seated. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Those precious words talking about our union with Christ, that he is in us, we are in him if we're truly saved, which is exactly what we've been talking about in John 15 in this amazing section of the Upper Room Discourse. You remember Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13 through 17, all taking place on Thursday night of the Passion Week. And in this whole discourse, Jesus is preparing his disciples, making sure they're ready and equipped for when he leaves. The main lesson throughout these chapters is that there is a tight unity between Jesus and his followers, and even though he's about to leave, they can still remain in him and he will remain with them. He's telling his disciples he's going away, they cannot come with him yet, and now it's their task to continue the ministry that he began. How do we do that? What are the ways in which we continue his ministry? What are the ways that we're to live now that he is gone? How are we to live in such a way that we please Him? Well, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 tell us it's bearing much fruit. The ministry that we will have to glorify God is to bear much fruit. Five times in this passage explicitly, one time implicit. So six times in these verses, the theme is clearly bearing fruit. That we would be believers who bear much fruit. It's all about spiritual productivity. We want to be highly productive. We want to be abundant in our output. We don't want just a little bit of fruit. Um, Even verse 2 of this passage, uh, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. It's about bearing more fruit. Verse 5, bearing much fruit. Verse 8, it's about bearing much fruit. So we need to grow in our our own hearts a, a holy discontent about the fruit that we are currently bearing. We want to grow more fruit. We want to be fruitful believers. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we push beyond our own status quo? How do we push beyond our own fruitfulness and grow in our fruit-bearing abilities? We asked this question last week, what are the essential ingredients that ensure a greater fruitfulness? What are the essential ingredients that ensure a greater, greater fruitfulness? And I believe that there are three ingredients that are essential if we're to grow in our fruitfulness. And they're found in these verses. So if you have your Bibles, John 15 verses 1 through 11 is where we are. And let's go ahead and read these and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. John chapter 15 verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Father, we, we ask your blessing on this time. We are on holy ground. We have such an amazing privilege to gather around your word and to dive deeply into its truths. These precious words spoken just hours before you are going to be crucified Spoken to disciples who just really didn't know what was going on. Confused, scared. These words contain precious promises. Though Jesus is leaving, he will not leave them alone. And we know that reality for our own hearts. He has never once left us. He will never leave us or forsake us. God, we want to be 
righteously discontent. We don't want to be happy with the amount of fruit that we are growing. We want to bear much fruit. We want to bear more fruit. We want to grow in ministry. We want to grow in godliness. We want to grow in reaching people around us. We want to grow in our Christ-likeness. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to teach us how to do that this morning. May these words spoken so many years ago that are eternal and timeless, God, may they encourage, challenge, convict, and comfort our hearts this morning. And may they start a movement in our church of pursuing a greater fruitfulness, of not not growing comfortable with where we are, spiritually speaking. Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In these 11 verses, as we are answering the question, what are the essential ingredients that ensure a greater faithfulness, we found three answers. We looked at one of them last week, and we'll look at the other two this morning, but I just want to give them to you again so that we have our framework. What are the essential ingredients that ensure a greater fruitfulness? Number one, we have to identify the source of abundantly bearing fruit. What's the source of abundantly bearing fruit? Then we have to embrace the means of abundantly bearing fruit, and then we have to live out our role in abundantly bearing fruit. So if we want to grow in our fruit-bearing abilities, we need to figure out what the source is, figure out what the means are, and then figure out what our job is in all of this. So last week we looked at just the first point. We looked at the source. The source of abundantly bearing fruit is Christ. Verse 1, I am the true vine. And if you drop down to verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And then drop down to the end of verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. So if we want to grow fruit We can only grow fruit if we are stuck to the vine. The vine is the source of our fruit-bearing abilities. We do not grow the fruit ourselves. The vine grows the fruit through us. So we asked three questions, just briefly to recap where we were last week. We asked, what is the fruit? Why do we want the fruit? And how do we get the fruit? So what is the fruit? The definition is the reproduction of the life of the vine in the life of the branch. The fruit that Jesus is calling us to bear is the reproduction of the life of the vine in the life of the branch. So the life that the branch has is proving that it's stuck into the vine and the the vine is giving it life. Why do we want it? We saw five motives in these verses. First, God is glorified by it. We want to glorify our Father, and He is glorified by our bearing fruit. Secondly, we prove we are disciples of Jesus. Obedience to Jesus' teaching is the best indicator of our salvation. So we, we don't bear fruit to get saved. We bear fruit because we are saved. So fruit is the evidence that we are saved. Number three, we participate in Trinitarian love. Number four, we live a joyful life. And I don't, still have not met somebody who says, I, my aim in life is to be as miserable as possible. That's not happening. Um, we all want to live a joyful life. And if we live out what God is telling us to live out, we will have our joy made full. And then number five, we don't want to be judged. We don't want to be burned, as Jesus talks about in uh, verse 6. If you don't abide in Him, you're thrown away like a branch, gathered up, cast into the fire, and burned. We don't want judgment. There's many motivations. We talked about all these in detail, not only last week, but this morning in Family Bible Hour. But the reality is, what is this fruit? It's the, the reproduction of the life of the vine in the life of the branch, Why do we want it? Five different motives found here and a bunch of different motives found elsewhere. How do we get it? You have to be attached to Jesus. It's about Christ. Christianity is not first and foremost a set of doctrinal beliefs. Oh, I'm a Christian because I believe these things. It's not first and foremost a set of ethical principles. I'm a Christian because I do these things or I don't do these things. Christianity is first and foremost a person to embrace. It's about Christ. So we talked all about that last week, and now I want to move to the second and third point. What are the essential ingredients that ensure a greater faithfulness? We identify the source and why we want the fruit, what the fruit is, why we want it. And now we have to ask two questions. What are the means that God uses to bear the fruit? 
and how do we live out our role? What is our role and how do we live it out? So the second ingredient, we have to embrace the means that God has given to abundantly bear fruit. What are the means that God has given? Well, we see it in verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He, the vine dresser, my Father, takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He, my Father, the vine dresser, prunes it so that you may bear more fruit. So what, what, is the, what are the means that God has given to us such that we would bear more fruit? It's the pruning that's discussed in verse 2. He prunes so that we may bear more fruit. Jesus is the source of the fruit, but how does he produce the fruit? How does he produce it? He produces it through the vine dresser, the Father pruning us. That's how he produces it. And look at what the Father does. Verse 2, look at how meticulous the Father is. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. So every single branch is either purged or pruned. Every branch. There is not one branch that is left behind here. Every single branch is either purged, taken away, or it's pruned so that it can bear more fruit. The Father eliminates every branch that doesn't bear fruit. We talked about this last week. These are the the people that think, I'm in the vineyard, as long as I'm in the vineyard, as long as I go to church, as I'm, I'm a part of the Christian community, I'm in the vineyard. I'm not in the vine, but I'm in the vineyard. So just being in the vineyard, I'm a Christian. No, you have to be in the vine. You have to be in Christ or else you're not truly a part of Jesus. You're not truly saved. You can be in the vineyard all you want, but you will be taken and thrown, cast in the fire and burned. You will be judged. But this raises a question. Verse 2 raises a question that I want to spend just a couple minutes on. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my Father takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes it. Does this mean, this sounds like it means, there are branches that are in Christ. They're not just hanging out in the vineyard. They're in Christ. And maybe at one point they were bearing fruit, and now they're not bearing fruit. And so God says, well, you were saved, but you stopped bearing fruit. You stopped looking like a Christian. You stopped acting like a Christian. So now we're cutting this off. You're done. This verse has been used to to prove, quote-unquote, two different things that I think are incorrect, two different false teachings. Number one, that you can lose your salvation if you're a believer. You're in Christ, but somehow you just stop doing your part of the job, and so you're going to be cut off and thrown out. So you can lose your salvation if you're a Christian. Some people say this verse is teaching that. I would disagree. Other people say this verse is saying... Well, there's a purging that happens, but it's similar to pruning. So really what this verse is saying is you can be what we would call, quote-unquote, a carnal Christian. You can be a Christian. You can be attached to the vine and just never bear fruit. You're still a Christian. You just don't bear fruit. A fruitless Christian, a carnal Christian. Your life doesn't change. You look just like the world. You have no different affections, no different desires, no different loves. But you're a Christian. We would call that nominal Christianity, which name only doesn't get you anywhere before God. You stand before God and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah, you may have claimed my name, but you wore my name in vain. I never knew you. But let's, let's be fair. Verse 2 could be used to say that, right? Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes. So what does this mean? This is where... Grammar is abundantly helpful. So if you're not a grammar nerd, hang on one second. And if you are, I think you'll be happy. The phrase that is in question here is in me. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. In the Greek sentence structure, that word, that phrase in me, can fit in two different places. So as my Bible reads it, my translation says every branch, and you could put that is in me. Every branch that's already in me but just doesn't bear fruit is cut off and thrown away. That could be used to support these two views. That would be using the in me adjectivally, right? Every branch that is in me, every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit. But there's a second way that this phrase in me 
could be used in this Greek sentence. And it would be adverbially. Every branch that does not bear fruit in me. Every branch that does not bear fruit in me. Now, what's the difference here? One says, you're a branch that's in Christ, but you're just not bearing fruit. The other says, you're a branch, you're not in Christ, and you're proving that you're not in Christ because the fruit that you're trying to bear is not fruit born in Christ. One is adjectival, one is adverbially, adverbially used. And here's the key. You've got to trust me on this one. Five times in these six verses where that phrase, in me, is used, it's used five times, five other times. Every single time it's used adverbially. Every other time it's used adverbially. How to bear fruit, you bear fruit in me. So my Bible has this as an adjective. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. But I actually believe that it should be every branch that does not bear fruit in me, through me, by me. Every branch that tries to bear fruit on their own, they won't really be able to. They'll be pasting their own apples onto their own branches and saying, see, God, look at my fruit. But they're not bearing fruit in me. So they truly aren't connected to the vine. Do you see the, the difference there? They're not connected to the vine at all. And if they're not connected to the vine at all, number one, we lose our two problem issues from this passage. Those are gone because we can't say, well, they were once saved and now they're not. No, they've never been connected. And we can't say that you're a carnal Christian, that that's a possibility because you've never been connected. You're not saved. You're not attached to the vine. But the second thing that we affirm, if this is the correct position, every branch that does not bear fruit in me, the entirety of this section is proving that fruit bearing occurs only in a vital union with Christ. So it totally makes sense that that's the position where that phrase would be. Every branch that does not bear fruit in me. You're trying to bear fruit on your own. That's the whole point of the passage. So I think we have ample evidence to say this passage teaches every branch that does not bear fruit in me. You're trying to bear fruit in some other source, some other way, and it's not working. Remember the parable of the two builders. Everybody's a builder. Um, everybody who professes faith in Jesus is a builder, right? Everybody in that passage is a builder. You're either building on Christ or you're building on your own self-sufficient works. Same thing is true here. Everybody who professes Christ is a branch. Some are branches that are self-sufficient, trying to do things on their own, or some are branches that are in Christ. So, the Father is going to purge every false professing branch. Just like the two builders, the storm's going to come, judgment's going to happen, and great will be its fall. So, He purges those that profess Christ, profess faith in Christ, but are not genuinely saved. And they're not saved because you can see the evidence of it. They're not bearing fruit. Again, fruit does not make you saved. Fruit proves that you are saved. But he doesn't just stop by taking away the branches that aren't bearing fruit. He prunes, end of verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit so that it may bear more fruit. I don't know if you've thought this way before. I have. I've thought, and I'm really looking forward to when I'm older more mature in my walk with the Lord. And the pruning kind of slows down. Like, I, I just kind of see, like, in this stage of my development and my walk with the Lord, I'm still a spiritual knucklehead, and I need Jesus to do a lot of pruning. But as I grow in my walk with the Lord, as things start changing and sanctification starts happening, I look more like Jesus, the pruning kind of slows down. Well, this verse would not say that. If you are bearing fruit, you will be pruned. If you're bearing fruit, you will keep being pruned. And that pruning will never stop until we see Jesus face to face and eternity starts in blissful joy. He bears, he takes every branch that bears fruit and prunes it. So if you're doing a great job walking with the Lord, bearing a lot of fruit, guess what? You're still going to be pruned. Your fruitfulness does not exempt you from pruning. In fact, God's looking at the people that are fruitful and saying, let's keep on pruning so we get more fruit. So, my question here, we have to stop and ask three questions. What is the pruning? What is used to prune us? And who does the pruning? What is pruning? Just really quickly, pruning is the cutting off of sin or the cutting away of anything that is superfluous. Anything, in the words of Hebrews 12, any weight that would slow us down. 
The sin that so easily entangles us, God cuts that away. No more. But also, not sinful things, but good things that have become bad things because they become God things in our lives. He cuts those back. Anything that is a weight or an encumbrance, anything that keeps us, to use the language that we've been using in this passage, anything that keeps us from reproducing the life of the vine and the life of the branch, anything that stops, that stunts, that halts the growth of the life of the vine going through the branch, God's going to say, let's prune that, let's cut it off, let's get it away so that we can bear fruit. Number two, what's used to prune us? What's used to prune us? I think there's two things predominantly that the Bible says are used to prune us. The first is suffering. The second is Scripture. Suffering. Suffering prunes us. Trouble prunes us. Cutting back hurts. No one has ever said to me, my greatest experiences with Jesus, when he was closer to me, more real to me than I've ever experienced, was during the sunny days. My greatest days of fruitfulness, of greatest trust in God, were the sunny, happy days. The sweetest, deepest moments of union with Jesus and intimacy with him are always during the hard days, during the dark days. When you're closest to him, when there's a struggle and you're admitting your need and you're running to him and you're clinging to him. This is what Hebrews 12 says. Whoever the Lord loves, he's going to discipline. It's not fun in the moment, the author of Hebrews says. This is not fun to be disciplined by the Lord, but it's because he loves you and it brings forth fruit. So suffering is used by God to prune us. But to be specific and to, use, to look at these verses and let these verses teach us this morning, verse 3 tells us specifically what prunes us. You are already clean. My Bible says clean. It's the exact same Greek word pruned. You are already pruned. You've already been cut back. You've already been bearing fruit, and so you're being cleansed. You're being pruned to bear more fruit. And you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So suffering does prune us. God prunes us through conflict, through confrontation, through trials, through troubles. But ultimately, it's not those things alone by themselves that prune us. It's the Word in the midst of those trials that prunes us. It's the Scripture in the midst of suffering that prunes us. You cannot be pruned apart from the Word. Psalm 119, the last verse in Psalm 119 is very, um, it's a good marriage of these two things. I was afflicted by God, and before I was afflicted, I did not have ears to hear your word. I wasn't listening to your word. And then I was afflicted and I came to your word and I said, teach me. So it's not suffering alone by itself. Suffering brings us to understand scripture and scripture is what does the pruning. Scripture is the knife that the father uses to cut back the branch. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So trouble comes, we react, the word convicts, and we are pruned. God prunes his children using the scalpel of scripture. That's what John 17.17 17 says. God, Jesus says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. And then he defines for us, your word is that truth. So if you want to be pruned, embrace suffering and embrace the scriptures. This book, it sings to us. And there are many moments where it stings us as well. This book is what prunes us. We've all been there before. We're reading a passage during our devotions and we just want to turn through it really quickly because it's starting to be very convicting. Or We're part of a small group. We don't really want to speak up because it sounds like everything that they're talking about is exactly what you're dealing with. You've been there before when somebody's preaching and you hear what they're saying and you're like, man, did, they, did, did my husband talk to them? Did my wife talk? Did, how do they know exactly what it is that I'm dealing with that they would preach on that specific thing? Let me just tell you, no pastor is that good. No pastor is that good to be able to know every single detail and say, okay, I'm going to preach every single detail. The Word is that good. It's the work of the Word. God uses the Word preached, taught, spoken, read to prune us. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, it's the Word that prunes the Christian. It's the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit eventually and effectually cleanses the Christian. Affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the knife. But the knife 
is the Word. Affliction is the dresser that removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the knife may get at it. Suffering in Scripture. This is dangerous work. Pulling back the fabric, seeing the diseased area, taking a scalpel, cutting away. Third question that I have is, okay, who's doing this work? Who's doing this work? This pruning work is very, very dangerous. And you know it's verse 1. My father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. God the Father is the one who's pruning you. He doesn't delegate the process of pruning to angels. He doesn't delegate the process of pruning to saints. He delegates the process of pruning to no one but himself. He alone prunes us. Now, there's a, there's a rebuke to my own soul in this moment. God alone prunes me. But I tend to say a lot, hey, can I have the knife for a second? I know where I need help, and I try to prune myself. I try to prune myself. I don't know if you felt that way. If you do that, if you struggle with that. If you do, you will find great encouragement and a little boy named Eustace Scrub. Eustace is a character in the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, and he's spoiled, he's self-centered, he's a greedy brat. And because of all these things, he turns into a dragon. He tries to snatch the, the scales, he tries to scratch them all off of his body. He takes one, he tries to rip it off. He wants to be a boy again. He doesn't want to be a dragon. And as he keeps on peeling back the scales, he keeps on seeing scales underneath the scales. Where's the bottom of these scales? Where's the little boy that I used to be? Three times he sheds a set of scales, but each time he just uncovers deeper ones, bigger ones. He starts weeping, and Aslan, the great lion, shows up and says, You will have to let me undress you. Eustace says this, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times. Only those hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had ever been. Then he got hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and after that it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. What was the cause of his transformation? What was the cause of turning back into a boy? It was Aslan saying, mm -mm, you're going to have to let me do that. You're going to have to let me do that. Oh, but we would so much rather do it ourselves, right? Thanks, God, I know that you can deal with it, but just give me the scalpel for a little bit. I know my problems. I know what I struggle with, and I don't need anybody to help me. You can go help somebody else that doesn't understand their problems. Just let me deal with me. We want to do the pruning ourselves, but here's the reality. We would never cut deep enough ourselves. We'd never cut deep, deep enough. God does what we would never have the strength to do ourselves. We don't like pruning. That's why this has to be the second point in this sermon. We have to embrace it or else we're never going to grow. We don't like it, but we have to embrace it. And here's how we can embrace it. The hands of the vine dresser are never closer to the branch than when he's pruning it. You say, oh, I don't like pruning. It hurts. Yeah, but God's never closer to you than when he's pruning you. He's holding you and he's cutting things away. He's right next to you. So yes, it hurts, but we need to embrace it because he's there doing the work himself. He's not delegating it to anyone else. Is God pruning you this morning? Is God pruning you this season 
this month, maybe the summer, maybe this entire year? How is he currently pruning you? If you are a child of God, you will be pruned to some degree or another. Will you embrace his pruning? If you want to bear fruit, you must embrace his means for doing that, using suffering and the scriptures to prune. That answers our second question. If we're identifying all of the essential ingredients in bearing fruit, number one, we have to figure out what the source is. That's Jesus. Number two, we have to figure out the means. It's pruning that the Father does himself through suffering in Scripture. And number three, we have to live out our role. What do we do? If God's the one who's doing this, Jesus is the source of our fruit bearing. He's the energy. He's the power. And the Father's the one who's cutting us back. Then we don't have to do anything. We're off the hook. And you know that's not the case. Eleven times in seven verses, the word abide is used as a command. You must abide in Christ. The branch cannot bear fruit. It's not, might not. Branch might not bear fruit if it's not attached to the vine, but maybe it will. Cannot bear fruit. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me, unless this is a necessary precondition. This has to happen before the other things come about. So Jesus is the source of our fruit bearing, but if we're disconnected from Jesus, if we're not abiding in him, then the fruit can't happen. So we need to abide. What does that mean? It means to remain, to stay, to dwell, to take up residence, to move into. Why do we need to do it? Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Martin Luther said of this verse, nothing is not a little something. Nothing is no thing at all. You can't do anything. So he says, look, if you want to bear fruit, you can't make the fruit happen. But you have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to abide, abide in the one who can make the fruit happen. Jesus is addressing the interior life, the life in our heart, the constant occupation that we would have in our heart. Is it with him? Are we abiding in him? Is he our greatest joy, our greatest treasure? What is it that we love the most? Abiding is a fighting of never letting go of him, not even for a moment. It's like marriage. We talked about this last week in Ephesians chapter 5. This mystery is great. The union of Christ and the church. Christ is in the church. Church is in Christ. That's just like marriage. Marriage is the greatest earthly picture of the gospel. Marriage is about abiding. Fighting in my heart. I, I was able by God, we all have the privilege to, to choose who we love. And I chose who I love. And now it's my job throughout the rest of my life to love who I chose. I get to choose. You get to choose who you love. And when you make that covenant and you make that commitment, now you love who you choose. And your entire life is spent focusing and fighting to love the one that you have chosen. Now, it'd be very easy to say that very callously, right? Well, I've got to wake up. It's my duty. I've got to fight for love. Tell your wife that. Tell your husband that. Here, here's some flowers. I'm fighting for love. But you, you hear, once, once that union happens, this is why marriage is so perfect. Your duty is now your delight. Your greatest joy is to fight for love. Somebody says to me, you know what, Patrick, you need to fight to love Hannah, to love your wife. You need to fight to love her. And so tonight, I'll babysit your kids so you can have a date night with her just to focus on her, to fight for love. Spend time with her, talk with her, date your spouse, continue to grow that relationship. I'm going to just give you the night. Go be with your wife. If any one of you called me and told me that, I wouldn't say, oh, I guess I have to. I would say, thank you. When can you be here? I want to get out of here. I want to be with my wife. I want it. My duty is my delight. And the exact same thing is true here. If we are saved, we will be fighting to abide in Christ. He's our greatest joy. He's our greatest satisfaction. He is everything to us. That's why you have to go back to last week's sermon. Christianity is not about, oh, this is what I believe. And it's not about, these are the morals. Marriage is not about, well, I guess I'm married to one person and that's it. Look at the piece of paper. Here we are. We're married. Okay, we're good. 
Uh, it's, not a, it's not a set of morals. Oh, I guess I can't commit adultery. There, there it is. That's all. I'm just never going to do that. No, it's about a person. And so, too, Jesus is saying, will you fight to never let go of me? Not even for one second. Fight to be in me. Fight to be with me. Fight to abide in Christ. What does it look like when you do this? If you drop down to verse 11, there's a clue here. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, in you, we're dwelling together, and that your joy may be made full. He's not saying, I want you to be happy. This is so much more. He's saying, I want the joy that I have to be your very joy. Jesus' joy is your, the joy that God himself has, which is infinite, limitless joy. He says, you can have that joy if you abide in me. So what does abiding in Christ look like? It looks like being so attached to him that who he is flows out of who you are. Don't disconnect from me, Jesus is saying. Don't try and do it on your own. Fight to abide in Christ. And we have to ask the question, how do we abide? We have the command here, abide in me. We have this command very clearly. We have the motivations for it. How do we do this? There's three reasons. There are three ways in which we do this. How do we abide? How do we live out our role in abundantly bearing fruit? Number one, we have to embrace our inability. You will never run to Jesus for the source of fruit bearing if you think you can bear fruit on your own, right? I mean, that makes total sense. If I think I can bear fruit on my own, then why am I going to be running to Jesus saying, please help me bear fruit? If we realize apart from Christ we can do nothing, then we're going to fight to stay in Christ. So embrace your inability. Jesus is saying that you can't produce spiritual fruit apart from an ongoing relationship with him. You can decorate yourself with moralism. Look, I'm a good person and, a, and staple apples to your branch. Look, I did this, I did. And get a little duct tape that works for everything and duct tape a couple bananas on your branch. Look, I did this. Look at the good things that I'm doing. But you cannot bear true fruit because you and I can't bear the fruit. Only Jesus is the source and the power of true fruit. So our job is not to bear fruit. Our job is to stick into the vine, stay there, never leave, never let go, and let him bear the fruit through us. But you have to embrace your inability. Self-sufficient people do not abide in Christ because they feel no need. By the way, this is why pruning happens. Suffering knocks out our idea of self-sufficiency, right? When suffering comes, we realize we don't have all the authority in the world. We don't have the power to do things. We are utterly dependent upon Jesus. So we have to embrace our inability. If we're going to abide in Christ, embrace your inability. Number two, affirm his adequacy. Affirm that everything you cannot do, he can do for you. Remember, he said, I'm the true vine. Everything that Israel failed to do, I have done perfectly and accomplished it for you. You can have that record. Everything you cannot do, he can do for you. Spurgeon says it this way, omnipotence, that's all powerfulness, is in the man, dwells in the man who has Christ in him. If you're attached to the vine, you have God's abilities, God's very character flowing through. You, you and I cannot produce a spiritual, supernatural kindness the way that God can through us. But here's just a clarification. The power is not in abiding. The power is in whom you abide. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. There is zero potency. There's zero power in faith alone. Just, I have faith. That doesn't matter. Who is your faith in? What is your faith in? The power is in the source of your faith. So we need to have faith in Christ and we need to affirm his adequacy and um, fight to be abiding in him. Finally, number three, not only embrace our inability and affirm his adequacy, finally seek him persistently. We embrace our inability. We say, okay, I can't bear fruit on my own. We absolutely glory in and affirm his adequacy. Okay, you can do everything. What I cannot do, he can do for me. And then we seek him persistently. Throw yourself on him for what he alone can supply. Instead of focusing your attention on bearing fruit, this has been so helpful for me as I've been studying this, your job is not to bear fruit. Your job is to faithfully abide. God's job is to bear fruit. 
So instead of focusing your attention on, I got to bear fruit, I got to bear fruit, I got to bear fruit, focus your attention on, I have to abide and let God bear fruit. If you abide in Christ, you will not be able to help yourself bear fruit. It's going to happen. The life's going to come through you. You can dress yourself up. You can take all of your energy and work on moralism, or you can abide. You can, using the, the parable of the two builders, you can see that a storm's coming and just put up walls really fast and say, I'm done, finish my work. Or you can do the hard work of digging down, abiding in Christ, and then God will build those walls and you'll be set to go. We need to seek Him persistently. How do we do that? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I've heard this verse just pulled out of context and preached as like a theology of prayer. Um, it's definitely about prayer, but don't strip this promise out of its context. Don't say, okay, verse 1 is about fruit-bearing, verse 2 about fruit-bearing, verse 3 fruit-bearing, 4 fruit-bearing, 5 fruit-bearing, 6 fruit-bearing, 7 prayer, 8 fruit-bearing, 9 fruit-bearing. Don't, don't do that. 7 is about fruit-bearing. How do we bear fruit? How do we abide? We abide by asking God to do that work. Abide in Him. Pray, God, grant me the ability to bear the fruit. Grant me the ability to abide. The reality in all of this is as we seek Him persistently, here's, here's the admonition to our souls. Abiding is not passive. It rests with you and with me to assume the responsibility for fruit bearing. It rests with us to assume, I'm going to abide in Him and let Him bear the fruit, but we have to abide. We have to do the work to abide. Look at how God does this. Our part is abiding in Him. God the Father's part is pruning us, and Jesus' part is supplying the fruit through us. So we should use verse 7 to pray and ask the vine dresser that whatever it costs us, we would be filled with the fruitfulness of Christ. Whatever it costs us, suffering, scripture, trouble, trial, bring it on because I want to be like Christ. Why should we want to be like Christ? Why is it such a big deal? Well, because I want to be a better person? No, that's too self-absorbed. That's the wrong motivation. Because I don't want to be judged? Well, that is a motivation, but ultimately, you want a relationship with the one who gave himself for you. And you want to glorify the one who gave himself for you. Don't you want people to look at you and say, only God could produce what's happening in your life. This, this is impossible. You don't act like this. I, I want you to be able to say, okay, Patrick doesn't act like that. This is, there's, there's something different going on. And I want to be able to say, yeah, it's God doing the work through me. The attitudes, the words, the actions. We want to live to glorify God. Spiritual productivity doesn't save us. Please hear very clearly, you fighting to abide in Christ is not trying to get saved. It's attachment to the vine that saves us, and that only happens through the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, and if you are attached, the spiritual fruit will happen. You bearing fruit does not make you saved. It proves that you are saved. So, as we end this section, we have to ask, Three, three questions in conclusion. Number one, are you in Christ? It's not about first and foremost, are you bearing fruit? Or first and foremost, are you abiding? First and foremost, are you in Christ? Do you have that relationship? Now, it will evidence itself in bearing fruit. You can ask, do I bear fruit? Do I do things that are not possible on my own power, on my own strength? That's a good test. But the first question is, are you abiding in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you in Him? Is He in you? Have you died and His life is now living through you? If not, this morning He will take you in now. If you would recognize your, your sin has offended God and is worthy of judgment, you've sinned against your Maker we have all sinned against our King. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And there's nothing that we could ever do to get back a record of perfection. So Jesus comes, God sends His own Son, and Jesus lives the perfect life that you and I needed to live to get to God on our own, but we could never live. 
And then Jesus dies on the cross bearing the penalty that we deserve for our sin. Jesus was punished by the Father as if he had lived my sinful life so that God the Father could look at me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect life. How do you get that? How do you get that perfection? How do you get that standard of righteousness, that perfect standard of holiness that Jesus has lived out? You can't do anything. You simply throw yourself at the mercy of Christ, grab onto him by faith and say, I believe, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the only way to be saved and I'm throwing myself at the mercy of Christ. If you would do that today, you would find yourself in the vine and then you would find yourself unable to stop yourself from bearing fruit. Second question is, do you submit to the knife? If you are in the vine, if you are in Christ, if you are saved, do you submit to the knife? Some people say at the beginning, I am the true vine. He is everything that we could not be. Therefore, I'm good. He's my standard of perfection. I don't need to change anything. I can't do anything. I just said that, right? You can't do anything. I'm good. But Jesus here is saying, yeah, I'm what you could not be, but I want you to grow in these areas. I'm going to grow you. Pruning is good. Yeah, it hurts, but it's good. If you say, well, I'm in Christ, I'm clean, I don't really feel fear judgment, I don't really need pruning or discipline, that's the attitude of somebody that's proving to not be in Christ at all. So do you submit to the knife? Can you see evidence of pruning in your life? Again, maybe you're in a season of pruning. Don't kick against it. Embrace it. Go deeper into it. Let God do that work to pull back the scales and to make you more like Jesus. Finally, question number three, what will it take for you to abide in him more rigorously? If you're saved, what will it take for you to fight more rigorously to abide in Christ? To fight with everything that you have. If you know that fruit bearing is what God wants from you, and you know the only way that you can bear fruit is if you abide in Christ and God does that work through you, then our job should be working as hard as we can to abide in Christ. That's our role in this, right? We said the source is Jesus. The pruning is done by the Father through Scripture and suffering. Our role, we have a job, and our role is to fight to abide. Spiritual fruit bearing is not an accident. It's the consequence of intention. You say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to abide in Jesus, and that life flows through you. God's part is pruning. Christ's part is giving life. Our part is abiding. So here's my question to you. How do you grow closer to Jesus? What do you do tangibly? What do you do to fight to abide in Christ? Every morning, if it's a usual schedule, I wake up at 5.30. Those of you who have actually been in my bedroom, you'll see I wake up to coffee happening. You'll see my coffee maker. I wake up to coffee happening. Um, it's beautiful. Sometimes if I'm wearing earplugs, I don't even wake up to the beep, beep, beep of the coffee. I wake up to the smell of coffee. And there's just nothing closer to heaven in this world. Um, 5.30, the alarm goes off. I don't think in two years I've ever gone, yes, a new day. This is awesome. Every morning, oh, I, I wake up, coffee goes off. Oh, man, I don't want to get up. I turn on a very bright light that I'm unable to go to sleep because this light's on. I turn the light on, shines in my eyes, shines into my book. Then I read for an hour and a half. I read my Bible, I read books about the Bible. Sometimes my wife and I will pray before the kids get up at seven. Once seven hits, man, it's just chaos. It's a circus. Then we go to the breakfast table, and at the breakfast table, we read a proverb together. We do catechisms to together with the kids. We pray for the day. And all of it is a fight to abide. And then at the end of the evening, we do family devotions together. We read, we sing, we pray together as a family. And it's just kind of an exclamation, part, an exclamation point on the day of fighting to abide in Christ. That's what I do. And I am not up here to say, and you need to as well. No way. That's what works for me. And I know that if I don't do that, I quickly stop abiding. I know that. Just ask my wife. She could tell you, hmm, uh, you haven't read your Bible in a couple days, have you? Or you haven't been abiding, have you? Or you haven't been praying, have you? I can tell. It's obvious. 
So I'm not here to tell you the way that I abide is how you must abide. Now, we know biblically, everyone must be involved in reading the Word, in praying, and in fellowship. Everybody, if you're a believer, you have to be doing that. But there are differing ways that you can do that. So I'm not here to say, do this my way. I'm here to say, what is your way? How do you fight to abide? Some people say, well, I'll just let go and let God. Right, you've heard that? Let go and let God. Oh, that's, that's nice, it's warm, it's comforting, and it's completely empty. You can't let go and let God. You have a job, I have a job, and it's to fight to abide. So pay attention to what stirs your affections for Jesus. Pay attention to what robs your, you of affections for Christ. Fill your life with things that help you abide. Cut away things in your life that don't help you abide, that take you away from Christ. And, and if you don't do that work yourself, God's going to do it in your heart. God's going to prune you. But let us all this morning, let's plead with God this morning to give us a greater fruitfulness in this semester, in this year than ever before. Let's fight for that. Let's encourage each other in that. Let's never let up. We sing the song, Lord, now I would be yours alone alone. I want to abide in you alone, and I want to live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. I bear fruit, yeah, but it's only because Jesus is producing it through me. So let's ask God to do that work in our hearts this morning. Father, we ask you to do that work um, to grow in us a greater fruitfulness. Uh, We can't do that ourselves. We admit wholeheartedly that we are unable to produce fruit. So we need you to do the work of producing fruit. But we do have a job to do, and that job is to abide. And so, Father, please show us this morning how we can fight to abide. Let us not play games with Christianity. Let us not play games with... Well, I, I show up at church, and that's all I need to do. God, there, there would be no way that I could abide in you if all I did was show up to church on Sunday mornings. I'd be disconnected the rest of the week. So I pray that you would help us all to truly assess ourselves, assess where we are in abiding with you. And God, if there's any in this room that they're not even in the vine yet, maybe they're hanging out in the vineyard, they've been to church for a while, God, may today be the day of salvation that they would attach themselves to you by faith and by grace alone. God, all we have is Christ, and so we cling to him and to him alone. We pray in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.